Hi, I'm Dr. Patrick Mason, and you're listening to Gospel Tangents. The best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to have Dr. Patrick Mason on the show. He's the head of Mormon studies at Utah State University, and he's a graduate of Notre Dame University. So we'll start out a little bit and talk about Catholic and Mormon studies, um, how those are similar or different, and so it's going to be a lot of fun. And then we're going to get into a couple of his books, uh, Proclaim Peace and Mormonism and Violence. So uh, does might make right? It seems like a lot of times might wins, but Patrick says that peace is actually more effective. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Martin Luther King, and we'll even compare Brigham Young to Malcolm X. So it's going to be a fun conversation. You won't want to miss it. Check it out. Well, welcome to Gospel Tangents. I'm excited to have, now, you know, it's funny because I called you the Dean of Mormon Studies and you told me that's not correct. That it is not true. Okay, so tell me, <laughs> go ahead and give us your name and your title and where we are. So I'm Patrick Mason and I hold the Leonard Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University. Okay. So not a Dean. I used to be a Dean at Claremont Graduate University, the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities, but not anymore. And so you don't like being a Dean? It, it came with lots of great opportunities and uh, way too many emails and stress. <laughs> so uh, at this point in my life, I'm very happy just being a professor. Okay, so a chair, is that, isn't that more than just a professor, though? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the problem with the academy. I mean, all, the, all these terms. So, yeah, there are department chairs oftentimes which, you know, are in charge of a, of a whole department. That's not this kind of chair. So, uh, so this is an endowed chair. Basically, it's an, it's an endowed professorship where funds have been raised in order to, uh, to have a professorship dedicated to a particular topic in perpetuity. So you've got all kinds of chairs around, you know, different universities that are oftentimes named after people or benefactors or something like this. This is the Leonard, Erring chair, Leonard Arrington chair, obviously named after the great church historian, mm -hmm. uh, where lots of people donated to make this possible. Okay. So, so I, I'm not in charge of anybody. <laughs> I, I just do my thing. Now, do you have like a staff of religious studies professors? Because you told me you're both in the history department and religious studies. Right. So here at Utah State, so uh, the religious studies program, I am the director of the religious studies program. Uh, so, but that exists within the history department. So the history department here includes history, religious studies, and classics. So we've got, uh, um, I've got a small handful of colleagues in religious studies, the, the full-time ones in religious studies. That There's myself uh, that does Mormonism and history of Christianity. Then we have um, one of my colleagues uh, who's a scholar of Hinduism, another one who's a scholar of Buddhism, another one a scholar of Judaism and early Christianity. Okay. So there's like a handful of you, basically. Yeah, exactly. And, and then we have a number of people who also teach classes for us, you know, to kind of fill in the gaps because we just have the four full-time professors. Okay, so. okay. How many adjuncts do you have? Well, between adjuncts, or a lot of them are full-time professors, but who just teach like a course for oh, religious okay. studies. They're not a full religious studies professor, but a lot of them are in the history department or in anthropology or sociology or something mm -hmm. like that. So they teach a lot of our courses on Islam, for instance, um, are, are taught by other people. Um, or we have people doing stuff on like uh, yoga and... Um, you know, all, 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 all kinds of stuff. Hmm. So. Interesting, yeah. interesting. So I, I sometimes I get very uh, narrowly focused in Mormon studies because that's what I like. Yeah, sure. But it's good to, <laughs> to see the other stuff you have here. Well, and well. It's, it's great. It's one of the reasons I like being here because I actually think that um, the religions are best studied in comparison. 
uh, with with one another. Uh, and I mean, you can always just go deep into one. I mean, that's that's perfectly fine. But I think there's a lot of insights that come. Uh, and I like teaching in in a department where we're doing lots of different things. So I even teach a course called Religion, Violence, and Peace, where we survey all of the major world religious traditions. So I don't just teach Mormonism. So which, it's not just Mountain Meadows that you talk it's, about. We we don't spend a whole semester. You do some on crusades as well. We, we do crusades, jihad, and holy war. We, we, we do everything. Yeah, yeah. Buddhism, Hinduism. Yeah. We do all the major uh, religious traditions, but not only the violent side, the, peace, the peaceful side, too. Right, right. Uh, so that's a, that's a fun course. That's a, a general education class for freshmen, so that's, that's a lot of fun. Well, very cool, very cool. So, um, so tell us a little bit about your educational background. Where did you get your bachelor's? And I know where you got your doctorate, but people yeah. would be interested <laughs> just in case. So. Yeah, so I grew up in Utah, and uh, I went to BYU for my undergraduate. I didn't really think I was going to, but, uh, but oh. I did. And, and that was a great experience. I had a great experience at BYU. I really enjoyed it there. I had great professors. Um, I, I was a history major there. Uh, and so I had excellent training from, from people uh, like David Whitaker and Brian Cannon and Susan Rue and Gary Danes and, uh, and just lots of amazing professors there. Uh, and then, um, then I went to graduate school. I knew I wanted to do uh, American religious history. I knew that, wanted, uh, that was going to be the, the focus of my career. And so I went to the University of Notre Dame, uh, which both then and now had one of the leading programs in American religious history. Oh, great. Yeah. So you're a Mormon Catholic here. Uh, in, in more ways than uh, one, actually. I, I mean, I, I actually have very deep uh, sensibilities, but also I've learned a lot from, from Catholicism, both from my, my Catholic friends and, you know, from, from Catholic theology in general. So, uh, yes, yeah, so Notre Dame you know, it, it, it's, it gave me the professional training I needed, but it also informed my spiritual life in lots of ways. So Notre Dame plays BYU this fall. Who are you rooting for? Notre Dame, all the way. All right. Okay. Yeah. So, no, we are an Irish family. I met my, my wife there. So she's from South Texas. She was, she was there as a student, so we met. Uh, she actually she came as a Catholic and joined the LDS Church. I had nothing to do with it. I met her at church. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, while, while she was there. So... No, wait a minute. Was she a Catholic at Notre Dame and converted to Mormonism? Yes. No way. Yeah. Did she think you get kicked out of school? She did not get that kicked out. That happens at BYU, though. <laughs> yeah, not, not at Notre Dame. We, we actually had dinner uh, several years later. with uh, We were sitting next to a priest. It, it, was, it was a guy who I, who I knew really well, just a, just a great guy. And we told him this story about how she had become Mormon while she was a, an undergraduate student at Notre Dame. And he just started laughing. And he said, he said we've got a billion. We can afford to lose a few. Ah. <laughs> wow. I mean, he was, you know, he wasn't that cavalier about it, but it was, uh, he wasn't offended either. Okay. Do you ever see that happening at BYU? I, I would, you know, I'd, I'd love to see that in, in the future. I mean, if, um, you know, that if, um, you know, Mormonism isn't going to work for everybody, right? Uh, people are going to follow their, their different spiritual and religious paths. And so if BYU, I mean, what happened for my wife is that actually Notre Dame awakened in her some spiritual and religious feelings that she didn't have. She was, it actually made her a seeker. Um, and she didn't find the answers that she wanted in Catholicism, while a lot of her friends were finding those answers. And so she, she found Mormonism. And if the converse happened at BYU, I mean, I certainly couldn't complain. I mean, it would be the universe balancing out. 
<laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But um, but I think if if BYU makes people religious seekers, um, and if that search takes them, you know, if they ended up landing in Roman Catholicism, um, I for one, uh, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure uh, I'd, I'd be in any position to complain about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting. So I know a lot of your background and studies, you've really been interested in uh, peace and violence. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of why we're here. We've got a couple of books. Why don't you show them the, the, the yeah. short one there? So here's the little one. <laughs> so this is Mormonism and Violence. This was published with uh, Cambridge University Press, I think, in 2019. Okay. And then the longer one, normally violence gets more play, but actually I, I was interested in giving peace a lot more play. So the, the longer one is Proclaim Peace, uh, the Restoration's Answer to an Age of Conflict. And I, I co-wrote this with David Pulsifer, uh, who's a, an amazing scholar up at BYU-Idaho. Uh, so this came out in 2021 with Deseret Book and the Maxwell Institute. Okay. Yeah, yeah I was wondering how, I mean, is there a rivalry between Utah State and BYU as far as Mormon <laughs> studies? Or not? I no. mean, they don't have a Mormon studies program. No, they, they don't for, for lots of complex reasons. Obviously, they have a ton of amazing scholars down right. there. Uh, but they don't have a Mormon studies program per se. They don't have a Mormon history chair or position per se. Like, Why not? Like, uh, that's, that's for them to answer. I mean, I, I, I think um, uh, my sense is that, you know, BYU is a religious school with a religious mission. Mormon studies is a secular field. Uh, so we, we approach the study of Mormonism from a secular perspective, from a, relig a religious studies perspective, where we're not trying to promote or denigrate the truth claims of the religion. We're simply trying to understand it. BYU isn't just in the business of simply understanding the restored gospel. It's in the business of promoting it. So in some ways, actually, it, it is true that Mormon studies as a secular field within the, the study of religion it's, it's not a great fit at religion at, at BYU. Now, lots of scholars there can employ those methodologies, have been trained in those methodologies. They participate in the American Academy of Religion and other professional you know, places, Mormon History Association, where right. we do take a more secular approach. But as an institution, um, that's not what BYU is there for. Uh, it's, it's not uh, there to take a neutral uh, approach towards uh, towards the gospel and towards the church. It's there to promote it. So, so I, I th there may be other factors as well, um, but but I think that's that's got to be part of it. Hmm. I personally love the neutral point of view. That's that's what I really try hard to do. It is funny to me. I will get a lot of people that are like, well, you are an active Mormon. Or are you an active Mormon? And I'm like, well, it's none of your business. <laughs> 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 and and I, at first I thought, well, these are active Mormons knowing, wanting to know sure. if I'm um, okay or whatever. The are you safe? Is. Or am I safe? Yeah. Um, but I've actually found that I get the question, I think, just as much from ex-Mormons mm. because... They want to know if I'm safe for them. <laughs> right. And so it's kind right. of funny. But, but my goal, I just love the, the neutral point of view yeah. because it just seems more fair to me. I'm not trying to promote it. I'm not trying to denigrate it. I just want to be fair. I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, that's, that's why I pursued a life and career of, of scholarship. Uh, I'm, I'm just interested in knowing the, right. the, the facts. And now the believer side of me 
um, and I'm an active, very active member of the church, the believer side of me says, hey, if, if Mormonism is committed to the truth, then I shouldn't be scared of anything exactly. that, that I discover in a kind of neutral, objective way, or even you know, people who are critical of the church. Um, I don't particularly care... Uh, you know, when, it, when I'm reading something or listening to something, what somebody's own biases or agendas are if their facts are right. Right. Um, I can always sort of filter out all that other stuff, and I can make my own decisions. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can make my own decisions whether I agree or disagree, whether I think they've skewed the facts one way or the other, uh, whether they've left things out. Um, I mean, that's what I've spent a lot of years training to be able to do is, is to exercise those kinds of judgments. So, so I, I feel the same way. I'm, I'm not threatened at all by a, a kind of neutral a, approach, uh, a fact-based, evidentiary a, a, a approach, um, because as a believer... I think my faith has, has, should be capacious enough and resilient enough to take into account whatever facts come along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I do wonder uh, if Notre Dame has a, a, a neutral Catholic studies program. I'd be curious. No, so, no, so it's interesting. So Notre Dame does not have religious studies. Uh, it has a theology department, actually a terrific theology department. It's kind of like BYU's religious education department. So BYU doesn't do religious studies. It does religious education, right? It's okay. there to promote and, and to teach people the doctrines of the gospel. Same thing at Notre Dame. Uh, all undergraduate students, I was there as a graduate student, but uh, undergraduates are required to take a certain number of theology and philosophy courses. And so they are there to teach Catholicism. Is it one a semester like it is at BYU? It's not as rigorous a requirement as at BYU. I forget the exact numbers. It might have changed since I was there. Um, but they have to take a handful of theology courses. Now, a lot of students at Notre Dame aren't Catholic, so, mm-hmm. so they can find other courses. But, but it has to be in theology. And at least somewhere along the line, they're going to be exposed to, to the teachings of Christianity and, and, and the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. So do Church. they like study Protestantism, Lutheran, Lutherans, and Baptists? And yes, so like within that? their theology department, again, I, it's, it's been a long time since I was there, so I haven't looked at the faculty list for a while. But while I was there, they had very prominent uh, Protestant and Jewish uh, faculty oh, members wow. on the theology faculty. So not just in you know biology or accounting or whatever, but on the theology faculty. I mean, there was just like a couple of them. Right. The vast majority were, of course, Roman Catholic. Um, but they, they recognize, and, and part of this, I think, is the maturity of Roman Catholicism. It's been around for 2,000 years, right? <laughs> so in two, give us time, all right? Yeah, well, actually, I very much believe that. I mean, Mormonism is just a kid. Right. It's a new kid on the block in, in terms of religions. And so with that newness, you know, we just haven't had time to kind of wrestle with everything or sort of come into our own. I, th- I think there's a kind of insecurity that sometimes it is, is part of our culture, partly because we are new and, and we feel some of those insecurities. I, I think the, the legacy of those 19th century persecutions hangs pretty heavy o- over us. Mm-hmm. But Roman Catholicism, I mean, you know, again, they've been around for 2,000 years, and, and they had a really pivotal moment. Uh, I won't bore your viewers with a history of Catholicism, but they had a really pivotal moment in the early 1960s, a big church-wide uh, meeting of all the bishops called Vatican II. Right. And one of the things that they did at Vatican II was decide that they were going to be more open to the world and more open. They, they started a lot of initiatives of interfaith dialogue. Um, specifically with Jews and with Protestants. And they've since added things with Muslims and with others as well. But they said, again, we don't have to be afraid. Uh, we're confident in, in our own theology. We're confident in the claims that we make and in our beliefs. But we have things that we can learn. 
Uh, and sometimes we've been on the wrong end of things, you know, especially, uh, you know, Catholicism doesn't always have a, a great history, especially with Jews and with Protestants. So they said we have repentance to do, but we also have learning to do in conversation with others. And I actually think it's a great model. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever see Vatican II for Mormons? I mean, it, it wouldn't. Do we be, have to wait another eighteen hundred years? <laughs> yeah, right. It, it wouldn't look exactly the same just because the structures of the church are different. In the Roman Catholic Church, all the authority is vested in bishops, so that's why these these uh, churchwide conferences, these like Vatican II, it was a gathering of all the bishops. Here, all the authority resides in one person or 15, you know, with 15 people holding keys. Well, doesn't the Pope have the... I mean, the Pope and the Prophet, aren't they? In that They're least? not the same, no. The Pope is simply the chief among the bishops. And so, so the authority within... The, the, now, if there are any Catholics listening, if, if I get something wrong, uh, you can email Rick and complain <laughs> to him. Uh, but, uh, but, but the authority resides within the bishops, and the, the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. So, so the Pope is the, the kind of chief bishop, the leading bishop, but, uh, but it's, it's the bishops of the church. So there's, there's hundreds of them, you know, all, all around the world that have that, that authority. Whereas for us, the keys are in, with 15 apostles, one, you know, exercising all of the keys. So, so the structures are a little bit different. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't gather all the bishops or even the stake presidents or something like that of the church just because actually they don't have, all of their keys devolve from the apostles. Uh, whereas in Catholicism, actually, the authority of the Pope comes up from the bishops. So it's, well, it's just a little different structure. Hmm. You know, because there's always this saying, <laughs> um, everybody says the Pope's infallible, but nobody, none of the Catholics believe it. And, and the Mormons, everybody says the prophet is fallible, fallible but, no, but nobody believes it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there are particular teachings about... Um, about the teachings of, of, of the popes and when they are infallible, which is actually really, really rare. Um, but anyway, that's, that's probably going beyond. Yeah, but, I'll have to get a good Catholic yeah, expert on. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's dive into, your, uh, into the, the, first, the small book um, yep. on Mormonism and violence. Kind of give us an overview of what that's about and, and why you decided to write it. Yeah, so, so this, um, as, as you said, I've, I've been interested in issues of religion and violence, religion and peace for a long time, actually all the way back to, to my time at, at BYU as an undergraduate student. And I don't know exactly why. I mean, I've lived a very sheltered, safe, peaceful, privileged life. I, I have not been, um, uh, I, I haven't seen firsthand the trauma of, of war or, or anything like that. So it's a little bit inexplicable to me um, uh, why I'm interested in, the, in, in these kinds of themes, other than, you know, simply uh, both a curiosity, but, but also, I hope, a kind of deep sympathy uh, for the human condition. Um, but so, so I've been thinking and reading and researching about these, these kinds of topics for a long time. And so actually these editors, this, this book is part of a series at Cambridge University Press on religion and violence. Uh, and they were inviting scholars from a variety of different religions or who were experts on different religions to write. And so the editors of this series reached out to me and said, hey, would you be willing to do this book on Mormonism and violence? And I said, sure. Okay, and so obviously we're going to talk about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, uh, but a lot more, too. Uh, so, I mean, for, for me, uh, the, the, the first chapter of the book is all about violence in Mormon scripture. Right. Because uh, I think we have to start there, and then I, and then I move to history. Uh, and um, 
uh, again, it's relatively short history. It's only 200 years. And most of the violence occurs in the first uh, few decades of, of the church's history. Um, and especially the 1850s. So the 1850s get a fair bit of attention uh, in the book. I mean, it's it's a it's a skinny little book. So yes. you know, every, everything. <laughs> there's more to say about everything in here. This this was the page count they gave me. The, 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 you know, they want these to be skinny little books for classroom use. Um, and so, uh, but I focus especially on the 1850s because uh, there's just no doubt that was the most violent decade in in Mormon history, and. Um, uh, with, with a lot of really troubling incidents and troubling implications uh, for the faith. Well, and I, probably the most troubling uh, scripture in all of Mormonism is the story of Nephi killing Laban. You know, a lot of times we justify that, um, but of course the Lafferty brothers justified yep. that. Um, they specifically trying... cited it as, as part of their rationale. Yeah. And is that something that we should not rationalize away so easily? Should, we, should Mormons be more troubled about the story of Nephi killing Laban? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a really troubling story um, on, on every level. It's, it's troubling that, uh, that the spirit would tell Nephi to, to kill this man. It's troubling that Nephi does it. Uh, and... It's a little unclear how troubled Nephi is by that. Dif- different people interpret some, some of the passages, like in Nephi's psalm, differently. Um, to, to know whether this haunted him for the rest of his life or whether he did it, felt good about it, felt like God told him to do it, and he moved on. Um, but, but we should be troubled by it precisely because of the implications of um, if... If you if you hear a voice in your head telling you to do this, are you supposed to just say yes? Um, and that's where I I think there's there are problems with uh, with John Krakauer's book um, Under the Banner of Heaven, which of course you know is a TV show now too. Um, but but he he's right to raise that question, and he raises that question directly for for him. Uh, Mormonism is a cautionary tale about the dangers of revealed religion. When you don't have any guardrails, when, when the voice of God can just come in and say, do this, and, and you have to obey. So, um, so I think we should all be, regardless of where you land on this, and I think there are different places to land, and people that I respect uh, come to different conclusions about the Nephi story. But, um, but we shouldn't, it's, just, it's not just a nice primary story. Uh, we, we shouldn't glide over it. Partly is we're desensitized to it because it comes right at the beginning of the book. We've read it a hundred times, a thousand times, right? So, so any, any story that you tell too many times, you forget even what the story is about. Uh, it, uh, and so this story, it's been told so many times that I think we've forgotten what it's supposed to do to us. We, we, we shouldn't glide right on through. We should stop. It should force us to stop and say, whoa, what's going on here? Well, even, you know... I hate to to do this because I keep I always like to pull everything back to Abraham because it really really bothers me that he tried to kill Isaac. Yeah. It really really bothers me that he sent Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert to die, you know. Um, and when we talk about you know, and I, I've said that to church members especially, and they're like, "Well, God sent an angel to save." <laughs> right. In both cases, both Hagar yeah. and Ishmael and Isaac. Um, 
But should we rely on angels to save our victims? Yeah, there was no angel that saved Laban. Right. Yeah, and so, uh, so yeah, there are a lot of parallels. In some ways, it sets it up. It's kind of like the Abraham story, but it's not. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it's not in a lot of different ways. Laban is not the innocent uh, victim. Laban clearly has blood on his hands, too. And this is, I mean, part of what's dangerous or at least troubling about the, the Nephi story is the, is the kind of rationale that the spirit gives. Uh, there's a kind of utilitarian rationale. Uh, it's better for one person to perish than a whole nation to, to dwindle in unbelief. Now, sometimes life is tough, right? Sometimes we have to make difficult ethical decisions. You know, there's the classic sort of train car thing, right? Would, 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 you, would you, you know, redirect the train car to, to, to kill one person or several people, you know? And, and so, I mean, th- this is something that philosophers have wrestled with for a long time. But, um, but yeah, the, the Nephi story is... Um, one of the things I always say about the Book of Mormon is the, is the Book of Mormon takes the most challenging theological issues from the Bible and it distills them to their purest essence. Okay. Uh, both, I think, the, the, the best doctrines of the Bible. So I, th- I think the, the Book of Mormon teaches the atonement more clearly than the Bible. So, so I think the, the, the Book of Mormon distills that doctrine in really beautiful ways. It also distills some of these theological problems in, in particular, I think, the, the, the problem of divine violence, both in the Nephi story and then I actually think even more troubling than the Nephi story is 3rd Nephi 9, um, when, uh, when you have whole civilization, you know, cities, I mean, tons of cities wiped out, and the voice of Jesus says, I did it. Um, so the Book of Mormon takes these problems that are introduced in the Bible, uh, but it just... It, it just like squeezes them. Well, and, and, and so we should grapple with these. I mean, if, if we look at the Bible, the flood, right? Yeah. God sent the flood to kill everybody. There's the story of uh, marching around the walls of Jericho, yep. kill everybody, even the cattle and everything. Like, what did the cattle do? Exactly. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, and, but what the Book of Mormon does, so there's actually way more violence in, in the Old Testament. What the Book of Mormon does, especially in 1359, is it attributes it to Jesus. Right. Uh, so, you know, I mean, Christians for a long time have had a complicated relationship with the Old Testament, and they do lots of fancy footwork to say, oh, that's, yeah, that's really bad, but we've got Jesus, <laughs> right? Uh, and, 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 and I actually think there's a lot to that, and, and we can talk more about that, um, the, the, the centrality of Jesus to any ethic of, of peace and nonviolence. But the Book of Mormon doesn't let us squirm out of that it doesn't it doesn't let us do there are also lots of kind of interpretive things that we can do or historical and archaeological things that we can do to kind of sidestep some of the problems and like, was it a global flood exactly was it a global flood did any of the the the, the genocides in, in joshua even occur the archaeological evidence says no right um and so so there's lots of ways that we can wriggle out of the old testament the book of mormon doesn't give us that luxury um, it forces us to, well, the ar- to, to there's no archaeological it. evidence exactly right? but there's, so there's no archaeological <laughs> evidence to disprove it right so right. all we have is the text right all we have is the text and the text is uh, really straightforward I, I, some, some people recently I think have done some interesting readings of third Nephi 9 that uh, um, that I think are really helpful but it's it, it lays bare these problems that God is the author of violence exactly and, and not like not just God but Jesus. Like the nice one, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, the loving one, the nonviolent one, the, the turn the other cheek one. Uh, it's, it's that same guy 
who, uh, who you know, has just been crucified, and then who's going to appear at the temple in Bountiful and say, "Come to me, put your put your you know hands in, in my side and feel the the wounds on my hands and my feet." It's that same guy. So. So do we like that guy? I do. I worship <laughs> that guy. Yeah. Uh, so, so the, I mean, we can dive into that right now, but, but, um, but yeah, that's that's what the Book of Mormon does. It 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 should not let us off the hook. We shouldn't just glide past these passages. Uh, I think we're meant to wrestle with them because there's so many wars in there, yep. and I'm, it's if, and I read both the books, and I might be getting them mixed yeah, up. That's okay. Because I know you talked about just war and, and yeah. George Bush. I can't remember if that was in the new book or the old one. Um, well, the new book. This is the Proclaim Peace is the one it's, I just it's finished. The new one, yeah. So I know I remember that one better. Um, but can you talk about just war theory in the Book of Mormon? Is that a uh, godly principle? Yeah. So of course, just war theory. It's not original to Mormonism. So this is this comes out of Roman Catholicism. Actually, the the, the long history. Uh, stretching all the way back to St. Augustine in, in the 4th century, trying to wrestle with what it means to be a Christian in this fallen world that we live in. Uh, and for him, he was wrestling the, with the ethical question of what is the Christian's responsibility when you see somebody attacked, right? Uh, there's evil in the world. Uh, there are violent people who will attack others. If the Christian is um, commanded to love and to protect others, what are we supposed to do in the face of violence? Uh, the earliest Christians were pacifists uh, for three for about three centuries, but but um, but that changed, and and Augustine in particular created the origins of what we call the just war theory, which is a set of principles that Christians developed over time uh, to to regulate. It, it was meant to constrain war, to, to to restrain the supposedly Christian rulers, you know, princes and kings who were always going to war with each other. They said, no, if you're a real Christian, these are the set of principles by which it's uh, it's just for you to go to war. You just can't do it anytime you want. You can't do whatever you want. So they came up with a series of principles called use uh, ad bellum, meaning the, 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 the principles, what made it just before you went to war, what principles would make it just to go to war, and then use in bello, uh, what are the principles in which uh, the, the conduct of war would be just. Um, uh, so it's this very long and robust tradition that um, the, the main criticism of it is that no Christian ruler ever paid any attention <laughs> to it. They, they said, okay, that's, that's a nice set of principles. I'm, I'm still going to do whatever I want. Um, but I think the Book of Mormon does, um, uh, it does offer, it, not in any kind of systematic way, but it does offer a set of principles that, that seem sort of like a just war principle. And we get most of this from the Book of Alma, you know, that 20-chapter stretch of, of the war chapters. And so this is, you know, principles like, you know, uh, Captain Moroni doesn't delight in bloodshed. Uh, for the most part, he's fighting defensive wars. Uh, for the most part, he tries to end the war as soon as he can. So there's these kind of set of principles um, that in a lot of ways correspond to, to just war theory, but I think even go beyond it and, and are, are more rigorous. And one of the arguments that um, David and I make in, in Proclaim Peace, and here we really lean on section 98 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is specifically a revelation given to Joseph Smith to address the question of what do you do when 
you're the victim of violence. This is when the saints are being driven out of Jackson County uh, in 1833. Joseph is saying, what, are, what should we do? Uh, and so God sends this revelation. And, uh, and part of the language of that revelation is he talks about how when it's justified for the saints to, to use violence, uh, to respond with force. And he uses that language consistently. This, this is when it's justified. This is when I justify you. And I think that language, it seems intentional. It's consistent. Um, and to me, it, it keys us into a kind of Pauline theology of justification that um, if something needs to be justified, it wasn't right in the first place. Right? So we need to be justified as sinners. Um, if, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need to be justified. Uh, in, in God's eyes. It's only because we're sinners, because we're not right, we're not just, uh, that Christ needs to justify us before the Father. And so, so similarly, uh, all of these acts of violence, uh, they, they can be justified under very strict uh, circumstances, and the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants 98 both talk about this, but it still means they're not inherently holy, that they, um, they're not sanctifying they're not right or righteous in God's eyes. They need to be justified through Christ's grace. Well, and I'm trying to decide where to go here. I kind of want to talk a little bit about Mountain Meadows. Yeah, sure. Um, were they justified in what they did? No. Not at all. Not even close. <laughs> no. <laughs> under, under no set of criteria. None. You know, because I know that that uh, some defenders of Mormonism will say, "Well, look what happened at Hans Mill." A, a lot of people point to things that the Arkansas immigrants probably said, yeah. supposedly, and nobody knows whether they said these things. You know, I shot or I shot Joseph Smith yeah, or whatever. Right, those right. those kinds of terrible things. Um, a lot of people will use those as justification, and especially Hans Mill was used after the fact to say, well, they got what was coming to them. But you're saying that's not justified, Absolutely even, even not. if it was true, which I think most historians right. say it's not true. That's right. Yeah. That's right. No, it's, it's not. Uh, under, under no set of either Christian or legal <laughs> principles, right? Uh, is is Mountain Meadows remotely justified? I, I, look, what happened at Hans Mill is horrific. Mm -hmm. um, it is uh, truly a, a stain on the history of Missouri and and, and this country. Mountain Meadows is worse. You know, what five or six times more people were killed—innocent men, women, and children—who had nothing to do with what happened at Hans Mill. I mean, I, I would say even even if you ha could find the perpetrators at Hans Mill, even if they were the ones in that wagon train, still what they did wouldn't have been justified. Um, we don't live under a law of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus's law is is different than that. It's higher and holier than that. And I so, love what Gandhi said: "All that does is leave the whole world blind." Leave the whole world blind. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so uh, there is absolutely nothing that excuses or justifies what happened to those 120 men, women, and children. So, it's, it's horrific. It's the worst day in, in Mormon history. Definitely. You know, one, th one question I have, because a lot of times, I'm trying to say this with, without being too inflammatory, but we're concerned about white people. 
the Bear River Massacre was twice as bad yeah. as, as, as Mountain Meadows. Yeah. And nobody, know, nobody even talks about it. Yeah. Um, and the Mormons were partially responsible for that, would you Yeah, they, they weren't perpetrators, but they, uh, they obviously, through settling this region here, Cache, uh, Cache Valley, they created the conditions uh, for that to happen, and then they were huge supporters of it. They thanked the army for it. Uh, they were grateful for it. They, they said horrible things uh, in the aftermath, celebrating that, that, uh, that horrible massacre. So, yeah, Mormons didn't pull the trigger. It was, it was a detachment of U.S. Army soldiers. And there's been plenty more of the indigenous massacres. Absolutely. You know, because I remember when I, I, I did an interview, it was either with Barbara Jones-Brown or Richard Turley, and I said it was the worst massacre in Mormon history, in U.S. history, and it, not even close. Yeah, not even uh, close. The Indian massacres are just dwarf those numbers. Yeah, and it was, it was actually, um, it was helpful to me. One of, the, one of the classes I took at BYU, actually, as an undergraduate, was the uh, uh, history of American Indians. And so we covered, you know, like Sand Creek and Washakie and Bear River Massacre. And, I mean, just so many that completely eclipse what happened. Uh, now, I don't think it's the Olympics of suffering, right? <laughs> you know, um, uh, certainly African Americans and Native Americans have suffered far more than anybody else on this continent. Um, but so so it's all horrible. Yeah. <laughs> all, but 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 I think you're right that that we shouldn't say um, the Mountain Meadows was the worst. Just factually, that's not true. And it does what what it means is that uh, Indian lives we don't count them the same. As, Red lives don't matter. Exactly. That, that, that's what we're saying when we make those kinds of claims. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's terrible. I have to tell you another book that I read was Jesus and John Wayne. Are you familiar with that yeah. book? Have yeah. you read it? I haven't read it yet. It's on my shelf. It is incredible. Um, I went to uh, graduate school with Kristen, so she was a year ahead of me at Notre Dame. Oh, yeah. I just, I'm trying to get in contact with her to see if I can interview her, because yeah. though I think that book is fantastic. One of the things, and it was interesting, because I read that right before I read Proclaim, Proclaim Please, and Kristen's thesis basically is, because the question is, how did evangelicals, because she kind of ignores Mormons completely, yeah, she's just, but it, it she's applies just to Mormons as well, yeah. but um, how did evangelicals vote for Donald Trump when he stands against everything they supposedly stand for? And in her book, she, she goes back to kind of to John Wayne and says, look, evangelicals love John Wayne. Donald Trump is the new John Wayne. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and this has been... This this Christian warrior has been, and she did some incredible research. Like, because I, once again, as a Mormon, I put blinders on. I don't pay attention to evangelicals. I don't pay attention to Catholics or Muslims or Jews or anybody. I'm just focused on this. And so it was enlightening to me to see a lot of parallels between evangelicals and Mormons, yeah. um, because a lot of Mormons have been voting for Donald Trump, and he stands against everything. <laughs> that Mormons and evangelicals would hold dear. Um, but she she made this kind of onward Christian soldiers mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and detailed since at least probably 1960 onward that this is, how, this is what evangelicals like. They like the Christian warrior bully. Yeah. Um, the, the John Wayne who's not a saint by any stretch, 
Um, but he's a he, fighter. But he's a fighter, and they like this Christian. And so, you know, she even talked about how the evangelicals really kind of got into the military, mm-hmm. and 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 how kind of that played out on January sixth, and and uh, with the extremist groups and everything. And so, to me, it was fascinating. And I, the one thing that I I came away from after reading her book was, well, how do we combat this? Do we Put peaceniks into the, into the military. <laughs> um, do we attack the the unchristian evangelicals, if I could use those terms? Um, but to me, it seems like if we attack them, then that just feeds the narrative that oh, Christians are being attacked, yeah. even if it's by other Christians. Yeah. Um, and so then I read Proclaim Peace, and I thought. Oh, this is a this is a new this is the way you attack it. But the problem is with me because you you look at the, who are the big peace leaders, and you mentioned Martin Luther King, um, Gandhi, Jesus. But what happens to all three of those guys? They end up dead, right? That's right. In fact, I, I, I my brother in law said, "Oh, so you just end up dead if you're if you're a peace lover, you just end up dead." And I don't know, like, we don't have a Martin Luther King today, do we? Uh, no, but we have a lot of people doing his work, uh, but we don't have a singular figure, uh, yeah, in, in the same way that he was. And so how do we build this? Because I, in reading your book, you made the claim that um, proclaiming peace is more courageous. And, and I believe that. Because nobody wants to end up dead like Martin Luther King, yeah. right? And that's why that's why we don't have a big peace leader like him. Because look what happened to him. Yeah, um, not only that, but, but uh, yeah, war is sexier. It's more exciting. Violence is. Yeah. You know, there's the, and if the bullies, if Goliath's on your side, you like Goliath. Absolutely, you love Goliath. Or if you're on David's side, you love that David killed Goliath, right? right? And cut off his head, right? Uh, either way, so violence seems to work for both the small guys and the big guys, right? Uh, but you're exactly right. I mean, this. Um, I mean, what, here, here's the secret: we all die. Captain Moroni's dead too. <laughs> Tiancum's dead. Hitler's dead. Putin's going to die. Right? Mm-hmm. They're all going to die. I mean, so so. You know, uh, that's a bit of a strange argument. But do you want to die young or die old? Most people would rather die old. Well, how many soldiers have died young? Go to Arlington Cemetery. Yeah, that's true. That because the nation sent its sons and now daughters to war, look at Ukraine right now. Um, a lot of people dying young. And we celebrate that. We call them heroes. But then, uh, uh, you know, somebody dies young in the service of peace. And that shows that the whole peace thing is is bunk. Somebody dies in the service of violence, we call them a hero. I mean, we just have a complete double standard on all of this. We know uh, there are uh, there's really good social scientific research by political scientists uh, that show that nonviolent movements are twice as effective as violent movements in achieving their aims with lower casualty rates. Peace works. It's not just a, this kind of airy fairy ideal. What about like Tiananmen Square? Of course. Well, violence works. Mm-hmm. Violence is real. Ask anybody who's been killed, right, or been <laughs> shot. I mean, violence has real effects. And, uh, and autocrats and many Democrats, small-D Democrats, I mean, have used violence uh, in order to achieve their aims. Uh, because it is 
it's very effective in the short term. It can be. But it, it also oftentimes backfires. It's not always effective in, in, in the short term. Um, but, it, but it sometimes is. Uh, and the, the, the key insight, for, for us, the, there's a kind of couple of key insights uh, for us. One is from Section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I, I think this is one of Joseph Smith's sort of great insights, you know, uh, I believe, revealed from heaven where he says, you know, no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood except by love, gentleness, long-suffering, persuasion, etc. And, you know, we always read that. I, I, you know, I've heard that scripture a thousand times in church. And it's always focused on the, you ought to be nice, right? You, you, you ought to use your priesthood in loving ways. Uh, and it does say that. But it, the, the, the key is also that it says no power influence can be maintained in these ways. And this absolutely goes along with political theory, with democratic theory, and everything else, is that, yes, you can use violence, you can use coercion, you can use compulsion to control people, uh, either an individual or large groups of people, for a period of time, sometimes a long period of time, sometimes decades, even centuries. But you cannot maintain that control forever through compulsion. The only way to maintain control is through persuasion. It's for people to give their assent to, to your leadership. That's what God does. That's what democracy is supposed to do. That's what good governance is supposed to do. So we recognize this in a kind of secular sphere. This is why, this is why we have democracy uh, as, as opposed to autocracy. Uh, because we believe in the principles of persuasion. We believe that, that people should choose uh, these kinds of things. Uh, Section 121 just uh, gets that at a kind of theological level. And, and I deeply believe that. It's, yes, it's true. Violence can, main, you know, it can have control. And it can kill people. It can detain people. Uh, we can manipulate people's minds and bodies in lots of different ways. You cannot maintain their control, uh, or you can't maintain their loyalty over the long term using coercive methods. Well, so what are some of the successful peace movements? I, you did mention something that I was completely unaware of in the book was Costa Rica. Yeah. Tell, tell us about Costa Rica. Yeah, Costa Rica. Uh, I think a lot of people know it as a kind of place for ecotourism and stuff like this. Costa Rica doesn't have an army. <laughs> they, they, they gave up their army decades ago. Uh, and I think there, there were a lot of factors that went into that. Uh, but they, they said, look, we're a tiny little country. I mean, we're never going to win in a war anyway, <laughs> right? Uh, what do we need a military for? And we could repurpose. Think about all of the resources that we dedicate to national defense, all right? What if we, as a developing country, dedicated those resources instead to development, uh, to literacy, and to reducing poverty, and to feeding people, and so forth? So Costa Rica got rid of their, their national army decades ago. They still have a police force, right? You know, to, um, and, and they, they do that. But, um, but they did. They reinvested in Costa Rica as one of the success stories in that region, a, a region that's been racked with, with drugs and politics and corruption and, and wars and all kinds of things um, for, for those decades. And, um, and Costa Rica hasn't been invaded. Why? <laughs> I, I mean, that's, I mean they, they maintain peaceful relationships with their neighbors. You know, they, they work through diplomacy. They don't have oil. 
Well, you could say that, but they do have resources. I mean, they, you know, they, they have things that people would want if, if you just, you know, a kind of power grab. But they, they have achieved power regionally. Now, are they a global superpower? No, right? But they've maintained freedom and independence and democracy without an army. And nobody's invaded. And, and, and they live in a tough neighborhood. You know, it's, it's not like their neighbor is Canada, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, you know, so, I mean, they live in a region where there have been decades of wars, especially civil wars. Uh, and Costa Rica's remains largely immune from all that. Let's talk about some other, well, and then, is, this a, is it a success story? We had the Arab Spring, which was a peaceful yeah. movement. It brought down Mubarak, but then... The but Islamic Brotherhood, yeah, it was crushed, and and now they're in a military. Yeah, they're right, basically right back where they started. And I lived in Egypt for a couple of years, so we followed the, the news in Egypt uh, really closely. And yeah, the the Sisi regime is essentially Mubarak 2.0. Right, uh, maybe worse in some ways, actually. So, you know, I I think that would give some people pause. I mean, it did bring down Mubarak. But, That's right. But for what? Well, I mean, that's a, it's a complicated story because of the rise of the Islamic Brotherhood. It's because of the... I, I mean, here's the thing, that nonviolence doesn't guarantee success. Uh, we can all point to, to examples where nonviolent movements failed um, or where they were short-lived. We can, we can do that easily. Uh, that's, that's not hard to do. Uh, do we hold violent movements to the same account? Right? Do, 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 do we point at violent rebellions that didn't work and say, see, violence doesn't work either? I said, so, so it goes back to this double standard. Because well, you said that, that peaceful movements were twice as effective as violent movements. Yeah, that's right. right. So when you look at the history of the 20th century, uh, this is, uh, this is uh, Maria Stefan and Erica Chenoweth, uh, the, their research. And they looked at over the course of the 20th century, the nonviolent social movements, and they looked across the globe. Uh, most of these movements we've never heard of because they're in countries that, that, that we haven't paid attention to. But uh, so these are labor movements, these are democracy movements, these are all kinds of things. You know, fighting for for peace and justice and freedom all around the world. The when these movements use nonviolent aims. So the ones we think about as a civil rights movement um, or or Gandhi's movement in India. But there are literally dozens, dozens, hundreds of these around the world. That they're it's not a hundred percent success rate. Uh, but they are twice as likely to achieve their aims. This is, this is in a century when tons of violent groups have taken up arms to, um, to, to achieve the same kinds of things. All these civil wars all around the world are because of people taking up arms to, you know, to supposedly seek after peace and justice and freedom. Uh, and so at least what Chenoweth and Stefan's research shows is that history tells us that in the 20th century, if you use nonviolence, and um, if you're committed to it, you're actually more likely to get what you want. And you're not guaranteed, but more likely. And overall casualties will be lower. This is the thing. Pe- people always point to, oh, well, look at these civil rights you know, workers who were killed. Or look at these, these marchers who were killed. Well, again, have you ever paid attention to the casualty rates in a war uh, you know, or in a civil war? Uh, they're always worse because you've got two sides fighting. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it makes a lot of sense. You've got two people with guns shooting at each other. Your casualty rates is, are, are going to be higher than if only one side is shooting. Well, and I guess the thing that I look at, I mean, we look at the January 6th insurrection. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a violent attempted overthrow of the government. Absolutely. I just feel like 
if we're going to counteract something like that with a peace movement, we need a Martin Luther King, don't we? Well, you know, I, uh, peace scholars and activists debate the merits of this. So, so one of the, the principles generally of peace building is decentralized leadership. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Martin Luther King. If you come into my office, I've got a huge poster of him uh, on, on my wall next to my poster of Malcolm X. Uh, and, um, well, and that, that brings up a point because I was going to bring this up. Do we need a good cop, bad cop like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King? Because it seems like Malcolm X was just as important as King in getting the aims of the civil rights movement. In a lot of ways. And, and uh, this is the dirty little secret about Malcolm X. He didn't actually use violence. He left open the possibility of using violence, you know, famously by any means necessary, right? But point to a time when Malcolm X used violence to achieve his agenda. He didn't. He used persuasion also. He did the same thing that Martin Luther King did. He, he, he gave speeches. He gave talks. He organized people. Uh, but he was not, he, 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 again, he, he said... He was much more inflammatory in his speeches. He was more though. inflammatory in his speeches. Uh, he was more willing to poke you in your eye. Um, and, but, and, and he did say, if somebody punches you in the face, you have every right to punch him back. Um, but if you look at his example, he recognized that actually that African-Americans as a minority, that's, they were not going to get anywhere doing that. So he actually used those same lessons of persuasion, a, a, a kind of harsher persuasion, a more sarcastic. I, I actually love Malcolm X rhetoric because, I mean, he's just a master rhetor rhetorician. Even if you don't like his message, uh, he's just a, uh, he, he's, he's, he's incredible to, to listen to. Isn't that what Brigham Young was? Brigham Young, Malcolm X, except for people died, though, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Uh, there's something to that. I mean, the, the Brigham Young, uh, he was not polished, he was willing to provoke. I think if we're to com compare the two, actually Malcolm X was um, very strategic. Uh, he was also much shorter in terms of his public life. I mean, you know, the longer you live, and if you're the governor of a territory and leader of a church, I mean, you, you know, it's, it's just more space to make mistakes. But yeah, I, it's, I'd never thought about that, that comparison before. There's, there's something to it, but there's, I think, important differences between the two men as well. Is is that the main difference? Is longevity uh, and and power? Malcolm never never operated from a position of power, and I think you know Brigham Young. I, I'm really persuaded by John Turner's analysis of, of Brigham Young when it comes to these things. That actually Brigham Young in the 1830s, when he, when he led the mission in England, he was beloved. And he was, he was uh, gentle. He was known as a consensus builder. He was beloved by his fellow apostles and by the people in England. Why did they follow him in 1844? Because they loved him. I mean, he, he was beloved by the church. He had led them out of Missouri. He had led the people, you know, the, the converts from England. And he, he really was a, a, a builder. What uh, John argues uh, in Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet, is that after the death of Joseph Smith, that really changed Brigham's personality. He basically said, you know, he was so loyal to Joseph Smith, but he said Joseph's one flaw was that he was too nice to his critics uh, and to dissenters. And Brigham said, you know, I, I, I have, I have the, the, the church in my trust. I'm not going to make the same mistakes that Joseph did. And, and so, so John argues that actually Brigham Young's personality changed and he becomes much more autocratic uh, at that point, I, I think that's right. 
and uh, and and so we see that play out in Pioneer, Utah. Well, and it, because I, I, this brings up the priesthood ban because there's that meeting in eighteen forty three, I think, where uh, Warner McCary comes to Brigham Young and says, "Why am I cursed?" And Brigham says to him, "You're not cursed." Mm-hmm. Um, there's a fine elder in Lowell yeah. uh, who's referring to Walker Lewis. Yeah. Um, and so he's... It's there like was in 47, 48, 40, mid, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, and after so, Joseph is killed. Yeah. So anyway, so Brigham Young is predisposed to allowing black members to continue to be ordained to mm-hmm. the priesthood and points to Walker Lewis. Fully Knows fully about it, right? And yeah. And is not critical at all. And then... When uh, so War- then Warner McCary does the interracial polygamy, and there's that case uh, with uh, oh my chronology's off, but uh, there was an interracial couple in yeah. Massachusetts, and then Brigham says they ought to be killed, and and my theory, and Paul will disagree with me, but I'm I still like my theory. <laughs> Is there was a de facto ban from that point on, uh, and and that's why I think not only did Brigham not allow blacks to be priesthood members, um, but yeah, I, I'm glad you said that because yeah, I think it was 1846 was that first meeting with Warner yeah. McCary, yeah, and it was 1847 when Warner starts doing the interracial polygamy, yeah, and, then and then Brigham changes got, yeah, exactly. on a dime and yeah. was like they they should be killed, and yeah. and so he prevents them from going into the temple and priesthood as well yeah that's right and so that, that's an interesting thought because i think most people view the 1849 brigham young or the 1852 in the legislature blacks will not rule over me yeah um as the brigham and and they don't get the gentle side of brigham yeah um yeah i mean the, so the, there, there was a reason why people followed him into the wilderness uh, and, and it wasn't because he, he was in no position to threaten them to do so. Uh, they followed him in 1844 because they believed in him and they loved him. They believed he had the keys and he had proven himself as, as a leader. And so then he became the bully? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, 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 he takes on, I mean, in some ways he takes on the burden of leadership. I mean, I'm, I can be hard on Brigham Young, but I also want to be sympathetic because I haven't walked in his shoes. To, to lead this movement, to, I, I think that all of the Mormons were traumatized. I'm, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, and, and, and we can't psychologize from, you know, almost two centuries later. But how could they not have been just deeply traumatized as a people and as individuals? Uh, they'd been driven from their homes multiplying. I mean, they, they had seen loved ones killed. Uh, the horrors of Hans Mill and Missouri and, and then Carthage. Uh, now, did Mormons have their part in it? Absolutely. They, they weren't just innocent victims, but they were victims. And, um, and so I think they, they walk across the continent in trauma and, uh, and Brigham's trying to keep it together. And, uh, and so, so I mean, this almost feels like Batman where yeah. you become the evil that you tried to destroy, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and for me, this is one of the tragedies of Mountain Meadows and all of the other violence in the 1850s. Um, it's one of the tragedies um, 
you know, we talk about Mountain Meadows so much, we don't talk about all the violence that the Latter-day Saints do against Native Americans. Right. Here. So, you know, they're not directly responsible for Bear River, but they are for a lot of other things in right. Utah. Because you had mentioned Circleville, and I don't think people know about that. Yeah, Circleville Massacre, when uh, this is part of the Black Hawk War uh, uh, in the 1860s. Uh, and this this is kind of frontier fighting, central, southern Utah between uh, Mormon settlers and and, uh, and Native Americans. And at a certain point, a number of, of uh, Native Americans had been rounded up. They'd surrendered, and they were just slaughtered. They were just executed. Uh, and there were other examples like that. As, as, as early as 1849, 1850, in the settlement of Provo in Utah Valley, that begins with an Indian massacre, a, a massacre of Native Americans by Mormons. You, you would hope and you would think that, that a people who had been so deeply traumatized and victimized by violence in Missouri and Illinois, that they would come out here and they would say, oh, we've learned that lesson, right? We know what it's like to be a minority. We know what it's like to be persecuted, to be on the other side of this. And so, so we're never going to do that. Uh, that's not the way humanity works. Uh, <laughs> power does things to people. The abused become the abusers. Too often. Too often. And as, that's one of the problems with violence and, and with violent movements is that, yeah, you're on bottom, and so, so, so the purpose is to be on top. Uh, and you don't change the dynamics. You, you just do because now you have power. And unfortunately, too often, that's what Latter-day Saints did. Now, there, there are some examples of generosity and, and beneficence and, and other things. But too often, Latter-day Saints acted no different than other white settlers in the West. So how do we proclaim peace? I mean, I, it just feels like nobody wants to be Martin Luther King <laughs> or Gandhi, right? Right. Or, or am I going to go on a fast for 40 days or something? Well, you don't have to do that. Um, but, I mean, here's, here's the mess of the, uh, of, of the book. And, and look, I've, I haven't tested this in my own life, right? If... if, if um, if I were put in a situation where I really had to put these principles into action, could I do it? But here's what I believe, at least. If we claim to be Christians, then our North Star, our guiding light, is Jesus. And like it or not, Jesus went to the cross. He didn't fight back. People are going to point to the temple. Of course they're going to point Cleansing to the temple. the temple. Jesus lost his temper. It's okay to lose your temple if you're in righteous anger, right? <laughs> uh, who did Jesus hurt in that incident? Nobody. He did not use violence against another human being. He drove out the animals. Uh, so, so if you're really big into animal ethics, okay, uh, there might be a problem there. There's also a problem with him putting the evil spirits in the, 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 in the, the, the herd of swine. And so, okay, so if you're an animal ethicist, okay, you, you can take that up with Jesus. But I, uh, let's, let's just focus on humans. Jesus does not use violence against humans. He does not. Here's the thing. He, he, he cleansed the temple. This is in public view. This is the center of power. Right of the Jewish priests, but also Romans were always watching the temple because they were always worried about insurrections. That's where it would start if, if a Jewish messianic. And that's where Jesus started. started it. That's where he, it is where he started it. But he started a different kind of revolution, a nonviolent revolution. They would have the Romans would have arrested him so fast had he done anything that was seditious or insurrectionary or violent. They would have arrested him and thrown him in jail, probably crucified him. You know what, a year or two earlier than he was. But they didn't, because he didn't do anything illegal. He didn't do anything violent. 
He moved some animals. He threw some tables over. Okay, if you really care about tables, okay, then take it up. But this is not Jesus using violence against other people. Uh, and you, you just can't argue that. So it's a lousy counter <laughs> example. Actually, people raise it all the time, but, the, but there's nothing to it. Well, and then the other thing is when Peter chopped off the uh, soldier's ear. What does Jesus say? Yeah. He says, put down your sword, right? Those who take the sword are going to die by the sword. The early church father, Tertullian, said when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every Christian. For him, that he was saying that you know Peter's impulse is the natural impulse, right? Not not just to defend ourselves, but to defend the people we love, right? And to defend Jesus, right? If there was ever somebody worth defending, it's Jesus. And Jesus says, "No, I don't need your sword. I don't want your sword. I could call down legions of angels." And that's what when he says legion, that's specifically a, a violent reference. We're talking about Roman legions. Right? So he's specifically saying, I could call down, I'm the Lord of hosts. Right? I could call down legions of angels. So that's not this kingdom. So this is the thing. If we want to call ourselves Christians, you know, and people are making a big deal about the name of the church, where the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were not Mormons, I'd say exactly. We don't follow Mormon, the prophet general Mormon who spent his whole life. I think Mormons are really interesting. I think he's conflicted. I think he's ambivalent about the violence that he's using. But he spent his whole life using violence. I'm not a follower of Mormon. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is a perfectly and radically nonviolent Messiah. If you don't like that message, take it up with Jesus. I don't argue with me. Right? It's, it's not Patrick Mason, whatever, right? What about Captain Moroni? What about Joshua? Well, it's not the church of Captain Moroni of Latter-day Saints. It's not the church of Tiancum of Latter-day Saints or the church of Brigham Young of Latter-day Saints. It's the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And his life, teachings, ministry, atonement, resurrection are perfectly nonviolent. Okay, so then I just want to bring it back to Third Nephi nine. Yeah, okay, that was the uh, that is the perfect follow up. Well done. So, so how do we explain that? So in the in the book, here's the argument we make, and now other people don't like what we do in in the book, and and have uh, provided some other arguments. So I'll I'll say what we do, and then I'll say uh, what what uh, what some other people have have argued. So what David and I argue in the book is that, so when, when Jesus is here, the, 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 uh, uh, you know, in Third Nephi 27, the famous scripture, he says, what manner of man ought you to be, even as I am, right? So he's pointing to, he's, he's saying, all you humans out there, what kind of person are you supposed to be? You're supposed to emulate me. Um, and what we argue in the book is that there is a distinction between what we call the condescended God and the ascended God. So Jesus, of course, is the condescension of God in the flesh. This is what Nephi talks about. So this is Jesus, uh, this is God who comes down into the world. And what we argue is that as fallen humans, um, one of the roles that Jesus plays is to be the perfect exemplar. And so Jesus is the perfect man. Jesus is the perfect human. Jesus is the very embodiment of what it looks like for God to walk on earth. And part of that is perfect nonviolence. And so Jesus says, you want to be a perfect human? You want to know what, it's, what, what, what you should do? Follow me, and that includes nonviolence. So, so what we argue in the book is that, uh, is that Jesus' ethic, um, what Jesus commands us to do, come follow me, is to follow Jesus, 
that he is the, the exemplar for, uh, for a Christian life, and that includes nonviolence. But um, if we take the scriptural record uh, on its face, it's really hard to argue that God is never violent. Do creative ways to do this. I'm sympathetic to some of those arguments, but it's really hard to get around that. And I think Third Nephi nine is one of the most um, uh, sort of on point cases. And so we we concede in the book that God. Uh, I normally don't like to do this kind of punts like this, you know, where where God my ways are not your ways and and things like that. But there's something to that. God is different than us. Uh, if not then why would he be worth worshiping, right? I mean, so, uh, so God is on a higher plane than us, a higher plane of consciousness, a higher plane of being, a higher plane of certainly of perspective and knowledge and all those kinds of things. And so just like we, we use the analogy of, of earthly families and earthly parents, that I'm the same species as my children, right? They're destined to become like me. I want them to become like me. But there are certain things that I can do as an adult that they can't because they don't have the knowledge, the perspective, the judgment, the power to do it. Um, it would be disastrous to, to let them do some, you know, to let a three-year-old drive a car, right, or something like that. And so, so there are th- things that are acceptable uh, for adults to do that's not acceptable for children to do. And so what we, what we concede is that it seems to us that the ascended God, God in heaven, because of his greater glory, perfection, righteousness, attributes, uh, etc., cetera, uh, is able to wield violence righteously in a way that, that we as humans cannot uh, and are forbidden to do. So we make that distinction. And that's how we make sense of 3 Nephi 9. So this is the ascended God doing that, not the condescended God. And we as humans are, are commanded to follow the condescended God. Now, other people have come along and, and, and said uh, that, uh, in, in, in fact, 3 Nephi 9, there, may be, there are some interesting textual things going on where they suggest that uh, maybe, um, maybe we can't... Um, Maybe it's not a fully reliable account of, of what's going on. And they, for instance, one of the interesting things is, is notice in 3 Nephi 11, before Jesus comes, there's this voice from heaven, right? And nobody can tell what it is, right? And, and they're confused and like they have to hear it multiple times. So, so th- whereas in 3 Nephi 9, it says there's this voice from heaven that everybody gets immediately and they recognize it as the voice. Well, if, if they could all understand the voice in 3 Nephi 9, why can't they understand it in 3 Nephi 11? And so, so some people have suggested that, that, that somehow 3 Nephi 9, it, it, it may be more complicated than actually what, what the account provides. But at least what David and I were trying to do is to take the text at face value. We weren't trying to get around it. We weren't trying to undermine it. We're trying to say 3 Nephi 9 is just as legitimate as 3 Nephi 11 and the Sermon on the Mount chapters. Uh, so our way of doing it is to think about the difference between the ascended and condescended. And so God, God is the parents and we are the children that's and right. God can do stuff we can't do. That's, that's exactly right. Um, and now somebody has countered and said, oh, so, so my job is just to be a good little boy until I can grow up and then I get to use violence, <laughs> right? I think that's what, I mean, I get that. I understand that. I think that's, that is part of the critique of our position. And, and that's fine if people want to critique our position. It was the best we could do. I think that also misses the point. Actually, still, uh, what, what's clear in Restoration Scripture it does seem that God does occasionally use violence. Uh, if you take the Scripture out of his face. Uh, but he does not enjoy it. <laughs> 
weeps. It's the devil who laughs in 3 Nephi 9. But God weeps. When he, he weeps when he sees our violence. He weeps when he uses violence. This is Moses 7. And so he takes no delight in it. And the other thing, the, the main difference between us and God, especially between the ascended God, is that, again, we're all going to die. <laughs> so every one of us, whether you die at two months or 20 years or you know, 95 years, everybody's going to die. God seems to be less troubled by the length of our lives than we are because uh, he has an eternal perspective, uh, we believe. And uh, he also crucially has the power to resurrect us. So there's nothing that God is doing, if, even if God does use violence, even if he does end people's lives prematurely, there's nothing that he does that he doesn't fix, uh, whereas I can't fix it. I mean, what, what, this, this is the reason why violence, why murder is, is so high on the list of prohibitions, because we can't fix it. We can't take it back. I steal something, I can return it. I kill you, I can't fix that. Uh, God can so again, there's a categorical difference between us and God. Hmm. Interesting. Um, there was one other thing that I wanted to just mention really quickly. Uh, you had mentioned, it's in the Doctrine and Covenants somewhere, where Joseph Smith had set up Zion's camp, mm-hmm. and you made the point God allowed things to happen, but that wasn't the way things were supposed to go. Yeah, if you read the Zion's camp revelations really closely, so we've always said, oh, this is God telling them to go form an army and go take back Missouri. And right? why didn't they get the Missouri back if God told them to take Ex- it? Exactly, right? So we've always had, again, all these kinds of questions around it. Um, that's not what God says. <laughs> this is amazing that, that we've been reading these scriptures for almost 200 years, and it, it just shows that we read scriptures with our filters, with a filter that prefers John Wayne over Jesus. Right. Uh, and so we've had our John Wayne filters on the whole time when we've read the, the Zion's camp, including the people in Zion's camp. So I'm not just blaming us. I mean, even at the time, they were ready to go. They, you know, Most of the members of that camp, they couldn't wait to get there and kill some Missourians. Uh, there were some members of the camp who didn't want to. Good marsh. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. Uh, but but you, if you read the Zion's camp revelations closely, at no point does God command violence. At no point does God authorize violence. He, he recognizes, he does talk about violence and that blood will be shed. Whose blood will be shed? The saints. He never authorizes the saints to shed the blood of others. Never. Not once in those revelations. Read them carefully. I've got a whole article about it. I also talk about it in in these books. But just go and read those things. And he talks about victory will be yours. But but how? He says through prayer, through diligence, through faith. We have... uh, We've we've dishonored God by uh, presuming... That he, that he was sending a ragtag band of you know, Mormons to, to go take on Missourians, to, to use some of his children to kill others of his children over a piece of land. Uh, we dishonor God when we say that. Uh, that's not what God said. Yeah, and so that was, that was really interesting part of your book, I remember, um, was that he... 
he allowed it, but he didn't. He didn't justify the saints. And yeah, and, and this is the whole plan. Uh, God allows all kinds of things. God allowed the Holocaust. He allowed slavery. He allowed the genocide of native peoples of, of this continent. God allowed. I mean, that's how seriously he takes agency, um, and the tragic costs of agency. I mean, it's a tragic wager that God made in the premortal councils. Um, he knew. Uh, I believe just how bad it would be, and he he made the wager that the goodness would outweigh the evil. Uh, I think he's right, and and that is the message of Jesus. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message of the gospel. Is that Jesus redeems all things, um, and that love wins, that righteousness wins, that justice wins. I mean, one of the things that Martin Luther King always said is the the arc of the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I mean, he knew the injustice that his people had encountered. He knew his life would, would end violently. He, he, he prophesied that. And, um, but he believed, because he was a Christian, uh, he believed that the arc of the, of the universe bends towards justice. That's the wager that God made. But he allows all kinds of horrible things to happen in the meantime. Well, let's switch gears a little bit, and let's talk about uh, apologetics and neo-apologetics. Yeah, sure. I mean, can we apply <laughs> we'll, these? We'll go from something where the stakes really matter <laughs> to, to a place where the stakes end. <laughs> so, uh, so you've been accused by John Delenn and others of being a neo-apologist, and I had to I had to get clarification on what's the difference between an apologist and a neo-apologist. <laughs> You're a nice apologist. Is, is that, do you like being a neo-apologist? <laughs> I'm fine. I mean, people can call me whatever they want. Uh, <laughs> um, I've been called worse. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. And I, you know, um, I actually think that there's something to that term, neo-apologist, especially in the way that John, I think, means it, uh, in the sense that, that the kinds of... And, I mean, the, the, the funny thing is when I went to, to, to graduate school, I never had in mind doing some of the kinds of things that I do. I mean, so, so you know, this is an academic book, you know, Cambridge University Press, mm -hmm. right? The, I mean, this is what I had in mind when I went to graduate school. But writing books like, you know, Planted and Restoration, I mean, that's, it, it, it just was not on the radar. It wasn't like, how do I do this academic thing so that then I can become an apologist? No, it was like, how do I do this academic thing, period. Um, the other stuff just kind of found me accidentally <laughs> over the past decade. But no, but I, I have um, those, those two books in particular, Planted and Restoration, those are works of apologetics. Um, and I think John is absolutely right that it's a different flavor of apologetics than we saw in the mid to late 20th century. Uh, not by everybody, but by the kind of dominant practitioners of apologetics with, within the church. Um, I think my tone is different. I think my approach is different. The, the kinds of things I'm interested in are different. Um, but it's still apologetics in the sense that I'm, I'm making an answer for or making a defense of, making an argument for um, a faith that I believe in and, and hold precious. Uh, and so, you know, maybe neo-apologetics is... Not such a bad term. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't mind it? No, I mean, I, I mean, from from the very beginning, when 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 Planted was published, I said this is a work of pastoral apologetics. I mean, that that's what it is. I mean, that is literally that that is the category for it. There's no other category for it. Um, and then restoration is is similar. Because uh, uh, I know some critics, they'll write off people like you or Terrell Givens sure. or others as apologists, which sometimes. 
to me can feel like a slur, like, oh, you don't have to listen to them, they're just <laughs> apologists. Um, because it really feels like a way to write off somebody. Sure. But you, you don't mind that term? No. I mean, if so long as... Um, look, I, I don't like anybody being written off just by names that we call them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, you know, I think a lot of the work that John does and other people who are critics of the church gets written off simply because we put them in a bucket and we say then... He's excommunicated. Exactly. So, so nothing he ever says or thinks is worth engaging with. And then other people on the other side, oh, these people are committed to the church, they, they write in favor of the church, they do work with and for the church, uh, therefore nothing they ever say is, is worth. I just don't live in that world. Um, I'm kind of an old school liberal, uh, and I mean this not in the kind of political sense, but in the sense of like, I believe in the marketplace of ideas. And um, I think all kinds of people can have good ideas, I think all kinds of people can have bad ideas. Uh, and so what I'm interested in is the quality of ideas. And, and I love for people to come and tussle and contend. I mean, for me, that's what the university is meant to be. That's what higher education is meant to be. Ideally, that's what we could do in our community of faith as well. Uh, we're not very good at that in our community of faith. Sometimes we're not always good at that in the university setting either, but that's what I believe in. Um, and so I don't care what people call me. I don't care what people call John. I don't care what, you know, I, I care about the, the quality of ideas. And so if, if people, Look, if people write me off, fine. I mean, I, I, I don't care, right? Um, uh, but but if, if they write me off simply because of a label and they're not interested in talking with me or, or hearing my ideas or letting me, um, you know, then I think we're, we're just selling ourselves short whenever we do that. And again, I, nobody, I, <laughs> there is no obligation to read anything by Patrick Mason, right? I mean, I, I'm just a guy putting ideas out into the world. Um, some of them to the academy, some of them to the church. And those two things happen to both live inside me and in my brain and in my heart. Other people, actually a lot of church members say, well, how can, I've had members of my ward sometimes attend my class at the university. Oh, really? And they say, wait a minute, what happened to Brother Mason? <laughs> right? And people say, oh, you're doing these two things. And for me, it's all integrated in here. I've done all that work over the past few decades. Other people who haven't been down the same road that I have see these as two very different things. So, so I look, I, I, I understand uh, people like their tribes, and we live in a tribal age, and people dismiss people who aren't in their tribe. I think that impoverishes all of us. Well, so what do you make of the charge? Because this has been thrown around, especially by John. People won't come... Patrick Mason won't come on a show. Terrell Givens won't come on a show anymore. Probably because some rich donor, uh, you're the chair. Who's the who's your chair? What's your name? Well, it's Leonard Arrington. He's dead, so okay, he, so he didn't get the money. Well, I know yeah. like Paul Reeves, the Simmons chair. Yeah, right. And so the idea is like a Paul Reeve, or you, you're being supported by these rich Mormons, and if the rich Mormons don't like you going on John Dillon's show, is that is that a a valid critique or statement? Well, I'll, I'll say for myself, it, it's, it's not. I'm, I'm an employee of the state of Utah, and I have tenure, which is a very powerful thing. So all the rich Mormons in the world couldn't get me fired. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, that. I'm, that's just Well, a, you're going to get your Deseret Book deal taken away. Okay, sure. And, and <laughs> I can show you the royalty checks. Let's just say they're not paying a lot of mortgage payments. Um, some, not, 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 not a lot. No, I mean, I, 
I, I, I think I think John has to admit that at least now his his show of, is of a certain kind of character, and he he um, he's trying to accomplish certain things on his show that I'm not always sure that's the best place for me to sell my books, you know, my apologetics books. Now, and I've told John this, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll talk with John anytime, anywhere, uh, as, as, as friends, but, uh, but I'm, and his, um, we have different accounts of, uh, why I didn't go on Mormon stories the last time, uh, he invited me and I may in the future. And I've told him that. Uh, at that moment when he invited me, it didn't feel like the right time to me. It didn't feel like the right framing for, for the kind of project that I was doing at, at the time. So it, it just didn't feel right uh, to, to me at, at that time. But I've maintained open lines of communication with John, and I may well come on his show uh, in the future. So I, I told him it was a not now, not a, not a never. Not a no. Yeah. Okay, because there was some project you were working on with yeah. him. Can you can you tell us? Well, that was about a few that? years ago. Um, so that was, I think, that was the fall of 2016. So actually, uh, Pathios, which was a big, you know, this before podcasts had taken over blogs uh, as as the sort of main medium, and and so blogs were still huge. I know they're still around now, but um, so so they approached us with, I I forget some of the details, but but basically with the idea that John and I would be in conversation with one another. I had just published Planted, so I was a, an apologist for, for the church, you know, with the, the kind of academic position. John, of course, uh, you know, with, you know, the, the, the status and the audience that, that he had with Mormon Stories and, and still does. And the idea is, you know, let's get, put these two people in conversation with one another, and we agreed to do it. And the idea is that we would, as John and I talked about this, and, and we, we didn't know each other very well then. We don't know each other very well now. We've only been in the same room a handful of times. And, and so actually our per personal interactions have been relatively few. But, but as we talked about this over the phone, we said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did this in real time? So not just like Patrick writes something, John writes, you know, like, you know Patrick writes a column, John critiques it, right? John writes a column, Patrick critiques it. What if, we, what if we tried to actually make it a conversation between two people who are trying to have a respectful dialogue? Because we both agree that's, that's not what we see between the, the, the Mormon and the ex-Mormon communities. It's a bunch of people lobbing artillery shells at each other rather than actually talking with each other. And so we said, what would it be like to actually have a conversation with one another? And so we said, let's do it in writing. And so the idea is that we, and when Patheos had asked us to, to, to do this, they said, hey, do some, you know, it'll take like an hour or two a week. And so we said, okay, we'll do this, and we'll, we'll write this joint column together. So we would literally be like on a Google Doc, I think we used Google Docs, where you could see the other person writing. And so literally, we were writing in real time. John would write something, I would write something back, and we were doing it in real time. Like a and chat, kind of? It's like a chat, okay. exactly. Uh, but, but like longer, kind of right. an essay, essay form, and with less emojis. And, uh, and we did that, and I think we produced five or six of them. I'd have to go back and look. And I'm proud of them. I think John is, too. I'm really proud of what we did. Uh, we had really hard, honest conversations with one another. But then we stopped, and, and here's why. I mean, this is where John and I have different accounts of it. 
it was enormously time consuming. You know, again, the, 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 the idea was, hey, this will take an hour or two of your week. It was taking like 10, 12, 15 hours a week. Uh, it's taken so much time on the writing because we said, let's write it and then we'll just put it out there. No editing or whatever. Well, that never happened, right? Because, because we were dealing with tough issues where, and we both had our respective communities that we cared about and signaling to our various communities and so forth. So we cared about what we were putting on the page. We didn't want to be cavalier or irresponsible about it. So there was so much work and there were phone calls back and forth. And there were, I mean, so, so what was supposed to be a very simple project ended up becoming very complex. And I was just at a time in my life, we were just coming off a family medical crisis. I had a newborn uh, who had, had been born as a preemie and had all kinds of medical issues and special needs. And then I, on top of that, I had just been made dean at, at Claremont and enormously, you know, and said I had these four little kids, one with special needs. And I, I had to let something go. Uh, it, and it all happened in the same, I think it was the fall of 2016. And so I, I just said, John, I got to pull the plug on this. It's just taken way too much time. Because I could see it wasn't going to, at no point were we going to get to the point where it was only one or two hours a week. Uh, it was always going to be enormously, kind of emotionally, but also time, you know, just consuming in terms of our time. And so I, I just, I pulled, the, so I pulled the plug and, and said, I, I can't do it anymore. And, and I think he, yeah, I mean, he, he's told me this, and I think he said publicly that, that, it, that he thought I was getting pressure from various people or other things like that. People Rich that, donors. Yeah, or even church leaders who didn't like that I was talking with John. It's just not true. I mean, it, 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 was, a, it, it was one of the busiest and, and hardest times in my life, and something had to go. But I'm really proud of what we did. I, th I think we did model what a conversation across these lines can look like. We dealt with hard issues and, and showed how two people who respect each other can come at it from very different points of view and, and, and come out on the other end with a relationship. But, but, but that was that. Are those conversations still available? Completely? Yeah, I, I haven't looked at it for, but it, it, it's on the internet, so I assume it's still there. Uh, What's it called? It was on Pathos and it was called, what did we call it? Like Inside and Outside Mormonism or something like that. I really should know this, but That's I don't. Right. But we, 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 you should be able to track it down pretty easily, like Google Patrick Mason, John DeLynn, Pathios. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, so you're not ruling out that you could one day be on Mormon Stories? No, because again, I, in, in, in general, I mean, I talk to all kinds of groups. And the thing to keep in mind, like I have my day job, uh, I, I do have a day job <laughs> as a professor, and, and that's, you know, that's where I spend the lion's share of my time. So all of this other stuff I do, the apologetics, all the church work, the firesides, everything else, that's all extra, you know, and that's stuff I just do in my free time. And so, so I have to balance a lot of those types of things. But in general, I believe in conversations. I believe in talking with people. I mean, I've been criticized for some people, you know, I've posted articles on websites that are typically kind of, or, you know, forums that are kind of more conservative and so forth. I've been criticized by liberals for doing that. I mean, I, I just don't like... Like Interpreter terms. or something like that? Or uh, like, like, like Public Square. Oh, okay. um, and and I, I just don't like this tribalism. I, I, I'd like us to engage ideas. And so, so I, 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 I think there, there are times where the, where the structures 
of, of a particular setting are actually not amenable to, to that kind of conversation. So, so I think, you know, sometimes you, you need to agree on a set of principles or kind of safeguards of what a conversation is, is, is going to be. I think everybody, you know, and everybody these days, you know, anybody who's out there in the public, I mean, you have a brand, right? Any, anybody who's even remotely in the public has some kind of brand. And so it's foolish not, not to be conscious of that at all, not, not to care about that at all, to be cavalier about that. So, so yeah, so John has brand. I guess I have a brand, I, I, I guess. You're, not, you're just an apologist. <laughs> Don't listen to Patrick. So, you know, so, so sometimes it's just a matter of when, when is the right time, what is the right setting for, for a conversation to happen. For me, like, in, in, in private between two people just talking about stuff, that's anytime, anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, for a more public thing, I, I think we all make some calculations about, about those kinds of things. Okay. You know, he also did a critique of your fireside. I'm well aware. <laughs> that, that was our last significant interaction. Um, uh, what, what do you have to say about that? I'm grateful. Did you, you watch the caffeinated or the yes, uncaffeinated version? I, I watched the caffeinated. Um, <laughs> And, and so I, uh, I don't think I called him. I, I know I, I think we we were emailing, chatting, uh, w whatever. But he's not the easiest person to talk to sometimes. Well, none of us are, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not either. Uh, and um, and he has an audience. He has a job. I mean, he's uh, to to do. And I thought the caffeinated version was unfair. Not to. I mean, yes, to me, but also he was just taking all kinds of pot shots. And actually, I think he was mischaracterizing and misrepresenting some of the things that, that I was even saying. But then, or even just using what I was saying to then just launch off on all, all kinds of things. Well, it was like he'd give you a sentence and then he'd go off and then he'd yeah. give you another sentence. And it wasn't really in context. Yeah, again, fine, right? I mean, whatever. It's his show. He can, he can do whatever he wants. But it... But in the course of our uh, spirited behind-the-scenes conversation that night, I, one of the things I really appreciate is, is that John went to the trouble, and, and it was. It was a big investment of time to, to re-record it and do the decaffeinated version and do his best to, to be fair to me um, to, to, to some of the points I was made. Of course, you know, he and I just fundamentally disagree on all kinds of things uh, when, when it comes to the church. I hope we don't fundamentally disagree about the facts, because again, I think the facts should be neutral. I, I think people from all, sometimes we, we don't have all the facts or, or, or sometimes our, our knowledge of the history is imperfect, but I hope we can at least agree on, on those basic things, but then we're just gonna interpret them very differently. And so I don't expect John and I to agree about all that kind of stuff. I, I, I do want us to be respectful and civil uh, and even loving towards one another. Um, he apologized, and, and, and again, I, I give him credit, the, he did a redo. A lot of people wouldn't. And so I, I hope that I would do the same. If I had just, we all have feelings, uh, and we all have audiences and constituencies, and I hope that if I ever sort of got out ahead of myself, that, that then I would have the courage to, to publicly sort of reel that, reel that back in. So, so I give him credit for doing it. We still disagree on, uh, you know, there's, there's still things in the decaffeinated version that I, that I don't agree with. 
but I appreciate that he did it. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. Well, is there anything else that uh, we need to talk about? It's up to you, your show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we've been here a while, and I really appreciate you being here on Gospel Tangents. No, thanks, Rick. Really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Patrick Mason. Patrick, thank you so much for sitting down with me. It was a very fun conversation. We're going to have to get back together again, so, so, so I look forward to that. In our next conversation, I'm excited to give you guys a tour of the restoration. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I want to talk first about, we're going to talk not only about early schisms, but we're going to talk about later schisms uh, of the recent past. Um, and so you'll notice these green and brown and orange and yellow. These match the um, colors that, that John was representing previously. So he's got nine possible successors of Joseph Smith here. Of course, the LDS church, the Brighamites and the RLDS church, the Josephites, I'm not going to spend a lot of time because I think we're all pretty familiar. <laughs> Most of us are either LDS or RLDS here um, or are very familiar with those. So William Smith's kind of interesting. He joined with several groups. He joined with James Strangs for a time. Um, he started his own church for a time and ended up in the RLDS church. If you like what we're doing at Gospel Tangents, please support us. Go to gospeltangents.com and you can get full interviews as well as transcripts if you'd like those. So click here to subscribe and over here you can see some of our other great videos. Thanks again.